0: And now,
1: live from Studio One in Castlebar, it's the Jack McDonald Show.
0: You are all very welcome back to The Jack McDonald Show here on FM, And as always, it's a pleasure to have you along for the ride. Jack McDonald and Keeveen Rowland helped me along for the show. So over the last few days, there's been one topic of conversation on this program that has been prevalent. And for any of you who can drive, I'm sure you've probably wanted to blow your brains out at times because it's been theory test, theory test, theory test. Well, uh, today was the f- kind of, I suppose, the finale of all of that, Kevin. Uh, where do we start?
2: Well, as we all know, I suppose you have been testing myself, Sean O'Hara, with the excellent help of Shana Dunning, who was well during the week. With the excellent driver theory test, I think a, a groundbreaking piece of radio, if I might say so myself, it did expose my own frailties. I have since actually travelled into Casabar and did see a speed van, and I'm still living with the nervousness and anxiety now of waiting for a letter coming to the door. Well, was. you're a dangerous
0: man on the road, Kevin. And that's the—that's what we uncovered. A lot of people out there uh, have passed these theory tests, or maybe not passed them, and they're going around on the roads. So, anyway, uh, got up at quarter to six this morning, Kevin. I had literally four hours sleep. Passport. You need a form of identification. I hadn't thought about this. Passport's missing. 35 minutes. Passport is looking for... I'm not looking for it. I was watching TV. But uh, I have a person in the house. I have my person go around. I didn't lose in the first place.
2: You have an assistant. Is is this what you're trying to tell me?
0: Well, sort of. Okay, by the duty of care, I actually lost her three weeks ago. But anyway, (laughs) uh, so finally get on the road. uh, Some nice... You know, I I must say, Ian Dempsey does quite a good show. I hadn't thought about that, but he does quite a good show. So we're going along the road anyway. Eventually... It's uh, it's a lot of directions. I'd forgot about, you know, Google, using Google Maps? Mm. I hadn't done that in ages. And so using that can be a little bit challenging. How
2: long is the journey from Castlebar to Port Leach?
0: Too long. Uh, <laughs> th- uh, I think it was three hours, maybe two and a half, three hours. So get there I wasn't actually that tired I, I slipped a little bit but we get there anyway and it's that classical thing
2: breakfast what did you any brain food no in the morning no, no breakfast, breakfast no. you're just fooling yourself here.
0: exactly so uh, eventually we get there and it's that classical thing you're in the right town but you have no clue where you're supposed to be. And it's asking people. And uh, ma'am eventually said, oh, that's this person. And she says, do you know where the NCT test center is? I'm not doing the NCT test center. So he gives us five minutes of directions. The clock is ticking, tick, 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 tick. And we're being directed to a completely wrong place. And eventually he quietens down. I say, yeah, that's not where we're going. So with two minutes to spare, literally, we uh, kind of reverse around and discover, oh, it's, it's just over there. So get over there, hop out. They do like a kind of, they do like a body scan, guy like search of you as if like you're, you know, some sort of terrorist or something. Mm. They check like you're not bringing in, you know, any, I suppose, cheating materials. Shane told me really? when he did his a little uh, while longer ago, I think it was just before COVID, they actually patted him down. They didn't pat me down now. Oh. But they kind of said, Do you have anything? So you give them your passport, you empty out any did, of the stuff they, like, you have.
2: they check you for like, smart watches and that kind of thing? They
0: didn't really seem to care, but yeah. they did uh, at least ask. So you go in, the woman takes your name, everything like that. Eventually, I'm given a booth. There's maybe eight people there, and it's already odd because it's like we're just all clicking away quietly here. And you can tell, you're trying to judge whether is that guy beside me clicking confidently or is he clicking like to just get through this? So, uh, they have like a, a kind of a customer evaluation thing to start off, and uh, I'm giving them all high scores, I'm hoping that this might uh, swing it in my favour, so, uh, anyway, we got gonna get on to the main 40 questions, the 40 questions which will decide my future, Keeping Roland, I have them in my hand right now, you hear this paper? I'm gonna give you that paper and you're gonna open it in just a minute, okay? Okay.
2: Okay, Okay. but I, m- I must preface, this is a piece of paper that has quite clearly been through a lot in the last 24 hours. So well, yeah, hours it, you or
0: know, something. it could be a celebration, it could be a diminiation. We'll see. So, you you know, once you're done, you press finish. They say, do you really want to finish? You say, yeah, I'm, I'm really done. You uh, get out of the room, and you wait there. A woman comes out, eventually, after three or four minutes, with a printed off piece of paper. She looks at the guy, uh, and it's a look that kind of goes, another one, and... Um, <laughs> Safe to say, Kevin, Uh, read out the scores there, please.
2: Well, I must inform the listeners that this piece of paper has been torn to shreds. (laughs) Uh, I I expect totally in anger during your two and a half trip home uh, from Leash back to Castlebar from your theory test. Remarkable that there's absolutely nowhere in the West of Ireland that's currently doing theory tests. The world has stopped, apart from in the wonderful land of Leash. Apparently, they're okay for... For theory tests and uh, getting back to normal. The scores. <laughs> safe. Number one category. The safe and socially responsible driving. You scored an incredible 15 out of 23. That's pretty good. That, That's... that would have passed. In the second category, control of vehicle. This is much more, uh, actually, uh, narrowed down to, to how it was when I, when I did it, but... Control of vehicle, you have immense control of your vehicle, even though you're not legally allowed to go near one. Two out of two. Two out of two. Impressive. See it's still looking good. Not it took a hit but still looking good? Looking quite well there. And uh, number three, legal matters forward slash rules of the road. You got five out of seven.
0: Now like if that if that was on its own you'd be going, Yeah, the guy that guy kinda knows the rules of the road. He's doing pretty well. Kinda,
2: yeah. Uh, managing risk is category four and you scored Five out of seven, once again. Kind of you know,
0: knows the rules of the road. Kind of. And kind
2: of knows the risks as well. But you're hitting far too too often towards mediocrity here, Jack. It's, it's disappointing. And in number five, there's one question in the technical matters category. And you scored one out of one there. Yeah, 100%. I aced that. 100%.
0: Yeah. So, in total, the final score reads, and by the way, the threshold is 35 out of 40 for this. The threshold reads uh, 28. I got 20. The final score reads 28 out of 40, which means that that piece of paper keeping has been through it all. It's been ripped up and torn. Uh, A lot of things have been said about the testers (laughs) in confidence. And it also means that I'll be riding the bus for quite a while. I think I'm going to be I mean, I think a lot of people on the bus probably, you know, they've realised that, the, that, that the testing centre is all political. It's all who you know. <laughs> exactly.
2: It's like everything in our society. <laughs> yeah.
0: Anyway, uh, that's about it. So that's just, you know, Kevin, I wanted to put myself out there as kind of a martyr for those that have failed a theory test, for those who haven't bothered to study, for those that couldn't do the basic questions. It's all right. You know, you're you're accepted amongst us. To be fair, this is the problem. When you're trying to interview people like FBI agent... Todd Hulsey, who will be coming up in just 40 minutes' time. He's an incredible guy. He's a Marine. He's uh, been through it all. He's been in the Secret Service. DEA agent. Just a plethora of stories. But when you're interviewing people like that, and they're like, you know, what happens if a trailer goes over a bridge, does a jackknife? I don't care. So that was probably the main thing. I don't know if I'll go back. I honestly don't want to give them any have, more time. Have
2: you lost confidence in, in your own rules of the road? Ability? See, see,
0: the problem was, when I walked in, there was a guy to my left and a girl to my right, and you could tell that this was way more serious than I had planned. This was like when I walked into the junior cert and I had been making a YouTube video the night before. And the people are just there like the pencils are shaking and they're completely spooked out of it. And I just went, oh, no, <laughs> this is not good. This, these, people have, these people care about this. These, yeah. these people actually care.
2: Have you heard fail to prepare, prepare to fail?
0: Yeah, but well, I was busy. It's, uh,
2: <laughs> I guess those people also weren't on a radio station and practicing the questions via a countdown. Yeah, exactly. Music quiz. <laughs> yeah. I wonder,
0: can I submit? I'll, like, listen, I, I got, I, you know, if I add some of the airtime to the twenty-eight questions. Can we get up here? Because that has to be worth something.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah, I can't believe they just didn't see it that way.
0: No, they didn't. And that's why it's all political in the theory test centre. Anyway, uh, that's that's it for for that. As I say, we've got a lot to talk about on the programme. If you want to text in, that's forty three. If you have ever failed your theory test or you want to say, ha ha, Jack, then <laughs> fair enough. Uh, okay, so it's... Uh, Keeveen, do you know what today
2: is? I have no idea what today, today is. Today
0: is the release of Fast and Furious 9.
2: How could I
0: forget? Yeah, I am. Um, they they were rumored to be going to space. They're not going to be spa- going to be space, but they're probably going to space next one. It's gone so far away from that original, you know, kind of quaint uh, film. But in celebration of that fact, we're going to take a track. This is Don Omar with Dan Kazuna. You are very welcome back to the Jack McDonald Show here on C or C F M. Kevin Roland sipping into a cup of tea. What is that tea? Water, okay, right, it's even better. Uh, you're very welcome to, on to the Jack Van Show, as I say. Some stuff in the news, but not great. There's that Britney Spears story, but mm. honestly, I don't think uh, we have any clue in talking about that in in any capacity. I'm not a doctor.
2: Or a psychologist. Yeah, exactly. Either. Or, 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 or her, I, her
0: father. Yeah, yeah, exactly, or, or in any capacity. So uh, the biggest story, though, today, Kevin, and this has gone viral online, is this uh, woman, she has gone on one of these American talk shows... And she has declared that a lifestyle was given to her by her ex. And she expects the ex to maintain that lifestyle after they've split. So here's the clip.
1: So I had a guy get me a Benz before and put me in a loft space and, you know, set my whole life up differently than what it was normally and i feel like if you brought me to like this level and then we didn't work out but we're still friends you know we don't we didn't have beef and no one cheated it was just didn't work out um but i still i I wasn't going to move from my space because it didn't work out i wasn't going to give him back my car because i'm not going to downgrade my lifestyle because me and you are no longer together
0: what'd you say about that kevin do you think she should be downgrading her lifestyle
2: well, the question is, what was her lifestyle beforehand if she was... Pretty bleak, I'd imagine. It must be. Or she expects that somebody in life is going to provide for her as opposed to her, you know, picking up her own knuckles and doing a bit of, doing a bit of work and getting the lifestyle she desires But at for the same herself.
0: time, if a nice little woman comes along, picks up Kevin and Roland, and suddenly you're flying private every day, is it not unfair that she's <laughs> upgraded your tastes and now what, you're supposed to go back to Archway
2: stores? <sighs> what's wrong with Archway stores you know in terms of of what you need and, and, and want in life uh she's speaking there about a car obviously she's not going to expect or be able to afford the maintenance on a on a top level car was it a mercedes benz she mentions at the beginning bentley i think a bentley wow okay um she, I'm sure he m- might have taken that car back. Depends upon <laughs> on, on his own wealth and his own. Probably given of, it to another one. I'd say. Yeah, well, I hope he has a deal with the with the manufacturers or some kind of dealership in the states to allow that to happen. It, it, it's totally wrong. It's what's one that you know. I can't really understand. She obviously has gotten a taste for the finer things in life, which is totally fine. She's had a life experience, but uh, it used to be that old American trope where the difference between the Irish mentality and the American mentality. In America, if they see the neighbour driving a brand new car, they think, my God, if I work hard, that'll be me next year. And in Ireland, we think, oh, let's just key it. (laughs) What What an absolute cretin. How dare he have something so nice and so lovely right in front of my eyes while I'm all pathetic and miserable. Um, It's like
0: that Bono line. Uh, Bono went on Gabe Byrne, I think, back in the day and he said, uh, yeah, the the difference, Gay between uh, America and Ireland is uh, the guy in the big house in America, uh, in in America, they say someday I'm going to own that house. In Ireland, they say someday I'm going to get that guy.
2: (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Very true. And it's good to see we're exporting our cultural values and now it's seeping through to the younger generation of the Americans. And uh, that's going to be to the detriment of their own. It is uh, funny success. that
0: there is a complete obsession. Like, that girl's 22 or 23. This is an obsession. You have to have a Bentley at 22.
2: What do you, well, you're not going to have a Bentley at 22 anyway, uh, I'm on this, community
0: radio right now, and i have well, I'm not going to, even if I have a Bentley, I won't be able to drive it. We've learned that.
2: Yeah, of course. And it seems unlikely with the score of 28 out of 40 that we'd ever want to see you driving a car as big as well, a Well, we've
0: established that that was a bias. There was a bias there. There was a political element to that. Anyway, that is the kind of, I suppose, that's the rundown. Let us know what you think. Does Is she entitled to something? I mean, to a degree, could you call that financial abuse? Is that a new thing that I've created for the Irish Times? It's an interesting thing, abusing people with financial power and then leaving them stranded in a lifestyle. Like, to be fair, she might have credit card debt now. She might have adjusted her lifestyle to that degree and now he's left her high and dry or whatever has happened and she can't support that anymore.
2: Yeah, well, at least it was. she was adult enough to say there were, there were no issues for the relationship ending apart from it just didn't work out. And that's that's totally all right that that happens in life. But it is an element of emotional manipulation, the fact that she expects uh, her ex-partner to pay for her lifestyle that, that she has been, um, I suppose, uh, experiencing during the time that they were together. And it's totally wrong. He, I'm sure he's going to move on, get on to, to bigger and better things. Um, I don't You're know immediately on this guy's side. Yeah, because she sounds like an absolute idiot. (laughs) There's there's a reason why you're playing it here. You know, she's a horrific human being um, absolutely awful if she if she does expect that somebody else is going to pick up the tab for her and provide a lifestyle that she desires, where she uh, is unable to meet her own ends. You know, I'm sure she may have credit card debt, but that's her own fault. These things don't last forever. Very few things in life do. And uh, I think it's a learning curve for this young woman. And Fair I hope, enough, okay. Hope she uh, responds and rebounds quite well.
0: Oh, that's good stuff. So, what you'll need to do now, though, is meet another person, be mm. it rich
2: or poor. I don't think she'll be meeting or wanting to meet many poor people. No,
0: exactly. I think Kanye West wrote a song about this many years <laughs> ago. But I, on that note, Tinder may have facilitated. A kind of a a portal into that. So I got an email this morning, not from Tinder, from a tech newsletter. I want to make that very clear. From a tech newsletter. Yeah, sorry. Uh, From a tech newsletter, and um, it it was kind of detailing the, the changes that were going to be occurring and these updates that were occurring to Tinder. I don't know if you have it there in front of you, but there is kind of three key details that Tinder will be rolling out, and it's potentially groundbreaking in terms of, I suppose, the future of dating. Firstly, they're looking into video, so they may be adding a video portion, which means that you can, I suppose, start going, hey, this is Keefe and Roland, I'll show you around the radio station, you know, this, this is my uh whatever what do you drive a corolla
2: <laughs> <laughs> i drive my dad's car is what i drive <laughs> whatever that is
0: <laughs> exactly but you know that, that kind of stuff can can so video can come into tinder for the first time ever and whatever it's it's 10 15 years of operating uh, along with that there's some other changes they're adding basically games within the app they, they trialed this during lockdown but the idea being that Okay, uh, we might, uh, you know, initially swipe on each other because of how we look, but maybe there might be something more to that. And instead of the date being awkward, let's basically play a game, Um, you know, be it, uh, I I presume most of these are kind of quite docile. And, uh, you know, it's not like...
2: Those Facebook Messenger games, you know, the the snooker and they have like, you know, whatever, basketball hoop games. I imagine it's going to be something similar to that. This is Tinder trying to become Facebook because they already have the amount of uh, downloads they want to keep people on their app for longer i suspect and it seems like they're going to (laughs) try and like they've already brought in stories so i suppose you know original thought and original ideas within tinder hq seems to be hard to come by and it seems to be quite unfair or well quite ridiculous really that they're going to expect people to spend more and more time on tinder uh just in the hope in the future that they're going to monetize that by selling people ads.
0: You're always so optimistic. Uh,
2: <laughs> the well,
0: the headline uh, the Verge have gone with is that they are looking to get you to actually talk before matching. So there are many uh, there are many uh, things available here, but the idea they they've got this new feature called Hot Takes, which is an interactive video game. that occurs nightly from 6 p.m. to midnight. Uh, you can ask, answer questions like, which of these is the most pretentious? And they'll volley in a chat. And I suppose that's supposed to kind of create, like, artificially create a bonding experience. Um, it's giving you more options and ways to navigate people and i think you'll see a lot uh, down the pathway as more of us put control in in the user's hands says the ceo of uh, tinder then there's the video portion which is very very interesting as i said before but it um yeah it's very interesting if any of you uh, have any had any any success with the online dating app, so you can text in 087-935-0043 certainly there are I, I believe a million I registered Irish users on wow. the on on Tinder and you know some of the other ones. If you're on some of the other apps, I'm just saying it's because you've been banned off Tinder. <laughs> There's especially in rural Ireland, there is no reason to be on the other, the second, the third, the fourth tier. What are
2: what are the second? Uh, Bumble is another one because they. Bumble, yes, Bumble
0: puts the the control in the woman's hands instead. Nice. Uh, so Bumble, the idea being that uh, you get chosen. Um, you, they've, they've tried hmm. to create a male version of this. I'd say that, that got banned off the App Store.
2: It's called Grinder. yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> uh, and so then there is a few others. There's Hinge. There is... Um, there's, there's many of them. There's, so many there's of them. quite a few, yeah. There's, there's quite a few, plenty but of is, fish.
2: Is this, is this really like... I'm reading some hot take written by some uh, beanie hat wearing San Franciscan... And they're stating that this is Tinder's attempt to reinvent reinvent itself for Gen Z. As a proud Gen Zer, Jack, is this TikTok meeting Tinder? Is it going to do it for you?
0: Not really. I mean, uh, I suppose you could you could see a degree of it, but I mean, how much personality can you show off in fifteen seconds? And how much good personality can you show off in fifteen seconds? You know. that I suppose it the takes, pers- takes
2: you an hour and a half. I think. Yes, I well, <laughs> <know what. laughs> from a weekly state.
0: Well, and people love me. People love me, Casper. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I, I suppose you know, the, it, there won't probably won't be much personality put forth. I'd imagine maybe a little bit more of personality in those games, but at the same time, as we said before, hot takes. I mean, how much of a hot take are you going to take? You're. It's. It's probably the hot. It'll be like extreme version. So it'll be. I hate the cops. I really hate the cops. It's not going to be. like, Yeah, I love the cops. They're great. It's going to be, you know, it's it's not actually Twitter. going to be, yeah, it's not going to be <laughs> left and right. It's just going to be left, 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 and some fella going sound.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, it does, you know, have to get, I suppose, people thinking, uh, I suppose, getting their mutual experience, mutual uh, understanding of the world. That is an important thing when you when you start dating somebody. I suppose getting to know someone and you find out if they share the same. Values Would you use a you?
0: matchmaker? I seen an ad uh, I, earlier I, I on. I said podcast. You interviewed I them.
2: interviewed a matchmaker. She was online uh, matchmaking. This is like just pre-pandemic. She sounded a bit daft, to be honest. Uh, uh, like Lister in Verna, of course, the f- famous festival down in Clear. Well, Clare. that's why I
0: bring it up, because that's been cancelled. And I had my bags that's... packed. It's been cancelled for the second year. Tony Hogan has gone and done it again.
2: Jesus Christ. And people are as lonely as ever as well. Yeah. You know, it would have been absolutely packed. You can see why they, why they had to cancel it. Well, yeah,
0: you can see there certainly would have been a demand in the market. But uh, guys, go back to that interview you had w- with the matchmaker. Why? I mean, that's not a sports show topic. Was she trying to get into sport?
2: No, no, she wasn't. Uh, I I probably was trying to have a bit of a sport go. But uh, she was talking during the mid morning. Suddenly last summer, I had her on, and I just remember kind of asking her a few questions and trying to see how whatever the dating game how it was going at the time. I just, It's not an interview. I look back on fondly, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but she was she was quite good uh, in terms of her press release. That's kind of how, how I came across her. And her, her business, I think, I imagine, is doing quite well. People like to outsource these things in life. Is it not, you know, up to chance or up to, to finding somebody? I suppose we've all spent 15 months indoors. We've all kind of been living a, a rural Ireland tinder anyway, because you're just looking at family members and people you're not going to want to coalesce with. And um, that is going to be something that's going to become more and more popular. as It's, it's normalized through apps. So, why wouldn't one individual who takes, like, I think it's like a thousand euro? I remember trying to press her on on the money, and it did seem to be quite high. And she was stressing how she. Well, it's
0: one of the things that once they've got you, they've got you. It's like, oh, money's not an issue. Money's yeah. not an issue. And then it's, I've got three Colombian supermodels for you, and here's a thousand quid. Here's
2: a. <laughs> Yeah, and then it seems like, you know, she wouldn't actually say how much, but she was stressing how she, she deals with professionals as well as how professionals want farmers. That was uh, another one. How she had a an Im- gender imbalance, how she had way too many women on her books and how the women wanted farmers. And I suppose she wanted to have her services heard on FM because of the large quantity of farmers that I'm sure are tuning in.
0: Well, see, that's the thing as well, though. Kind of a matchmaker would attract a more down-to-earth... Let's get. Let's you know. Let's. Uh, I suppose it's a probably more serious approach as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't pay a thousand quid for one night thing or a, you know a kind of a month or two month thing. It's a long running. It's it's probably. I would say a matchmaker at uh, at twenty four is not advised. But I'm sure a matchmaker come thirty four, thirty five, thirty six. I'm sure there's many people out there.
2: Yeah, of course, and it's huge in pop culture. You look at first dates. You look at celebs go dating. Uh, it's absolutely massive. You know, just simple television in terms of reality TV it's quite easy to do easy to manufacture and it seems to be really popular younger people seem to enjoy watching it uh, it's it's kind of like I don't know living living through somebody else's life watching them date and whether you know you're typically taking up skills or, or it's or very interesting kind of interest.
0: that when, you, uh, when everybody has kids in the future it's not going to be well I, I met your mother in a park or uh, I was li- running late to a meeting and I bumped into her or whatever it's going to be yeah it was 11 o'clock at night I was swiping through <laughs> Said you know you look you look fine there and it'd probably be some horrific chat up line I'd imagine that they use now and that'll you know that'll be that it, yeah. it it's not gonna be it's not gonna be the story now to be fair some of us it was um, I'm sure many will call in and say they were never storied as as they were made to seem that the the encounters you know were probably you know uh, romanced up a little bit but
2: yeah but that, that's very true and also I've met couples and you do ask them the questions like oh how did you guys meet. And as soon as you ask the question, you, you know straight away the men on Tinder because they just shuffle around the place and like they kind of have an awkward kind of story about it. And it's like, all oh right, you can just say men on Tinder, no one cares. Because people, younger people especially, just don't have the social skills to even randomly go up to a stranger, uh, charm them and have their number. You know, it's, it's something that's going to, Less well, it's less. the way
0: society has closed in on upon itself as well. I mean, 15 years ago, if you were in the gym and I said, ah, oh, keeping the wrong is looking good. And then I go, ah, oh, using the 8kgs. Yeah, I'm using the 8kgs. Then we hit up a conversation there. Yeah. Whereas now, yeah, everybody's headphones in, very zoned in. And so you would actually have to take out the headphone and go what what what? And you've missed the first part of, our, of the approach, and it's already muddy, and it's all you're already a creeper. You're, oh, you're already.
2: Yeah. That's that's the major worry thing as well. I was I was in Specsavers, like one of the first times I've I'd gotten out of my hole during lockdown, and uh, I had to go get contact lenses. Things were reopening, and I was going to looking forward to going to a party or something, and I was there, and this girl came in. She looked for, she looked really nice, she looked really cool, nice tattoos and uh she kind of was unconfidently shuffling around the place and in spec savers it's kind of like a well i suppose all against GDP or because you're right on top of people the space is a is at a premium and i heard didn't hear her name which i wish i did I, I was enjoying the eavesdropping element of it all that's something that we've lost out on massively in the past while and i heard her talk she was a yoga instructor i was like wow that's really cool i want to get into yoga I can't do it online. Of course you want to get into yoga. I've I've, I've rheumatoid arthritis in my family, Jack. You know, I want to prevent for the future. Uh, Instant rheumatoid arthritis. (laughs) It's on the way. I feel it, right? I feel it in my bones already. And uh, my hips aren't doing well. And I just thought, I want to, in lockdown, I had this idea of getting into yoga. And I couldn't do it because when you're literally upside down, it's very hard to keep an eye on a YouTube tutorial. And if you're doing this kind of thing, you know, you put your leg in the wrong direction and then your neck is, you know, in absolute agony for like three weeks afterwards. So I was like, wow, this is brilliant. And she said she was from the same village I was from in Mayo. She said, Lacherdon. You're in. She was in Lacherdon. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then she sat down beside me and I was unable to even like pretend to strike up a Mm -hmm. conversation. And I couldn't tell what age she was. So I was like, kind of like guessing away. And then I was also like, if I do say anything to her, if I if I do, I was just like, I'm going to get cancelled on Twitter. <laughs> that was just going through my head, the fear enough, of that.
0: You're not a big enough name to get cancelled on Twitter. No, but, I'm not. Not, not in is, terms of my name. No, but like but you'll would, go in a group chat, I guarantee you that.
2: 100%. And then it would just be totally finished. Uh, and that was what was running through my head. And, you know, I realised in hindsight that was nonsense. I should have just tried to say something to her and try to strike up a, a normal conversation. But... Yeah, it just, it just didn't come to me at that moment in time. And uh, it's a massive regret. So if you're out there, yoga instructor from Marathon, uh, who went to Specsavers a number of months ago, just hit me up. <laughs>
0: I think the BAI would say this is an abuse of the broadcasting oath we took. Um, no, but I, I also had a thought there as to, I suppose, is there is there a sustainability element to, there's almost an implicit kind of like the minute you meet online, It does like It does a I suppose It's not as valued As if you meet in person It's It's a little weaker I suppose
2: Yeah that's That's definitely true But also It matters after How you meet up You know I have friends who Have like 100 or so Tinder matches And I'm like Oh how many dates Have you gone on And they look at me like What What are those (laughs) Like have you not Asked a girl out on a date And it's a very male thing You know Every male man's uh, Way of dating is We go for a spin (laughs) And obviously you're never going to be able to use that line, Jack. But uh, <laughs>
0: hey, hey, anybody out there, don't worry, calm down. Your, mo- your
2: mother can drive you along if <laughs> you go for a spin.
0: We can go to Supermax. Uh, I have to be home by 10.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and that just, you know, it seems to be the way the way that the world works. It's also because of the fact that we have no places apart from the pub for, for younger people to meet in this entire county. And, uh, you know, it's not exactly as if there's skate parks or ice skating or those kind of things that would be seen in other countries where they value young people but we just have roads we have a, a love of cars and if you have a car you're, you're going to get a woman into it anyway at some point and uh, you might as well just drive, drive around and that's quite a, a romantic date kind of a creepy one though ultimately if you if you really stand back and, and have a look at it but knees must
0: yeah it's like imagine Julia Roberts going well he said uh, do you want to go for a spin <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, it It works though. It, you'd be surprised. Nine times out of ten, you know, anyone wants to get out of their house, just go for a spin. Well,
0: <laughs> anybody out there, if you want to go for a spin, I can give you Keeve and Roland's number. I guess GDPR, but I don't care. <laughs> um, so anyway, if you are to maybe download one of those apps, maybe you've been inspired by our conversation here, <coughs> you would hope to meet a certain kind of person. You'd hope to meet maybe somebody uh, nice, attractive, blue eyes, green eyes, maybe even brown eye. This is Brown Eyed Girl (laughs) with Van Morrison. You are very welcome back to the show. Now, my next guest has spent over 20 years in various levels of the American military and industrial, uh, military and intelligence community, rather. He is an incredible speaker. He's currently a lawyer. Todd Hulsey, welcome to the program.
1: Jack, it's a real honor and pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, Todd, it's truly an honor uh, here as well. You know, we don't always, in Ireland, we don't always get to speak to kind of high-ranking people like yourself. Firstly, I wanted to ask the question that I'm sure a lot of people are wondering. Were you a spy?
1: No, I was a counter-spy.
0: Okay, so what does that entail?
1: Well, a counter-spy operates against the espionage and intelligence collection activities of foreign powers. And I spent about half of my career with the FBI doing that.
0: That's very, very interesting. Let's take it back then to how you got started. I understand you spent many years in the Marines.
1: I graduated from high school and then I went to the United States Marine Corps. and I spent three years in active duty. Upon separating from active duty, I then attended college earning a bachelor's degree. I then went to work for the United States Department of Treasury as a special agent. I spent five years with the Treasury Department and during that time I worked investigations against Colombian and Mexican drug trafficking organizations along the Gulf Coast of the United States and along the southwest border with Mexico. After five years I then resigned. I went to graduate school, took a master's degree in international relations and then went to law school and took a law degree. I uh, passed the bar exam. I practiced law for about a year and determined that I didn't really want to practice law. I much rather would do the job that I had before, which is investigating organizations. And um, the the agency in the United States that loves to hire lawyers as special agents is the Federal Bureau of Investigations. So I, I applied to it. I applied to the Drug Enforcement Administration. I kind of slow walked the second application. I didn't want to be offered a job by DEA first, and uh, and then kind of fast track on my end my application to the bureau. And fourteen months after I applied, which is fast, uh, I was uh, reporting for duty at Quantico, Virginia for the F- to attend the FBI Academy new agents training, and then I spent the remaining sixteen years uh, with the FBI and various assignments, foreign and, and of course, mostly domestic retiring in 2014 after a total of 21 years of, uh, federal law enforcement service. If you were to ask me what I am, like, what are you? I'm a lot of things like a lot of people. I'm a husband, I'm a dad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But if you ask me, well, what are you? Uh, I'm a soldier. That's what I am at heart. And, uh, and everything and that means all encapsulating, so if any former American marines are are listening to this, they don't need to chide me for using the term soldier, which is applied in the American lexicon to the United states Army I'm using that in the global sense of being a a, a military person and uh, secondarily, I would say i I'm a retired intelligence officer since I spent a great deal of my fbi time in the national security side of things
0: it's very very interesting over here you do two things when you're 18 or 19 you either go to college or you go and you probably pick up a trade in america it seems a little different and certainly your story to go to the military first and then go to college it's an interesting path why did you choose to do that and would a lot of people your peers at the time have gone the similar route
1: It's not an unusual route in the United States. It's not unusual at all. I would say it is one of the typical routes uh, for people. Now, it is atypical in our society for people to serve in the military. Uh, Only about 1% of Americans serve in in the United States military. Uh, That's an entire uh, podcast discussion as to whether that's good or bad. Uh, in terms of citizenship, exercising the duties of citizenship, but that's that's about right. But I would say that you know thousands of people uh, enlist right out of high school, do a tour of duty in the military, and then get out and go to college. It's a very typical path. In the United States, we oversell uh, college education, and I will tell you this. I've got four college degrees, and the last one has the word doctor in it, and college is oversold in my country as a a necessary path to success. But a plumber in the United States uh, can make $100,000 a year. Uh, A welder can make $100,000 a year. So these trade jobs, which are undersold by our educational establishment, uh, are another pathway to success. It seems like in other parts of the world, uh, the I'm going to go ahead and call it a scam. The scam of the college education hasn't taken hold like it has in the United States and much to our detriment, because, uh, you know, somebody doesn't know what else to do. and They go to college, and they get some meaningless liberal arts degree that doesn't help them get a job in the you know, globalized high tech economy. Is really a waste of time and money, in my personal opinion. Uh, but my particular path, getting back to that, is, uh, is, is not an unusual one at all. Well, before you got
0: maybe suckered into the scam of college, those kind of three years you spent in the military, as you went into the military, what did you expect? Were you hoping for some combat, some boots on the ground, or was it more of a perhaps a formative experience in a different way?
1: Huh. Well, being 17 years old, when I went off to recruit training, yes, I wanted action. I wanted combat. I wanted to get into the fight. Um, as we would say, every red blooded American boy wants to get in, wants to get into a fight. Uh, that That's, uh, that's, that's, you know, I, I don't know. I hate to be the guy, the old guy who yells at the kids, get that, you know, get off my lawn. I don't want to be the old guy saying, well, today's kids are, and then fill in the blank. Um, but I do think in a society, you know, which relies on social media so much, there is a distinct difference between, you know, a 17 year old today and a 17 year old 40 years ago when I was 17 years old. And, um, but yeah, I wanted action. Of course, the only, there wasn't a whole lot going on. Um, there was the Beirut intervention in 1983. It, well, actually started in 1982, and, uh, and and then there was the Grenada invasion, but I was stationed on the west coast of the United States, and uh, my area, I say mine, I mean, I was a low-ranking enlisted man, but our area of uh, of um, responsibility was, was the Pacific. So, um, my battalion, I was in an infantry battalion, my battalion wasn't deployed to anything except, you know, training on, at Okinawa, Japan. And uh, and what the Western Pacific for six months. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It's uh, it's, it's almost a, for some people a formative experience to uh, uh, as well as a, the seeking out of, of, of action. Uh, I will say that today in the post nine 2001 world, the United States has been really overly engaged militarily around the world that somebody, Uh, Not so much this year because the United States is pulling back, but in the last 20 years, somebody who enlisted in the military was almost certain to be deployed to a combat zone. And whether their job would entail them to experience combat is another question, but but it was almost a certainty to be deployed to a combat zone and so i have to give uh, extra kudos to everybody who uh, you know signed on the dotted line and raised the right hand and took the oath of enlistment because they knew they were going to war and that's uh, you know and that's um, you know that's a uh, that's something that has some gravity to it
0: certainly now when you eventually went to college you got suckered in by the scam you i believe you did three years there and from what i understand the cia was your end point in your mind and that almost came together but then it kind of faltered at the last moment
1: it did so you've done your research well because almost nobody would have uh, figured that out i uh when i went to college um It was for a specific purpose. I took a political science degree. Um, By the way, looking back, it's a meaningless liberal arts degree, but that's what I took because I wanted to work for the agency. I actually went through the hiring process with the agency and was offered a job. And then the job was pulled back after about, I think the job offer, which I accepted, I, I think after about four for five months, it was pulled back, and what was explained to me is that it was a funding issue, and uh, that they couldn't fill a number of positions that fiscal year, and invited me to reapply the following year. And instead, I went and applied to the Treasury Department. A friend of mine, a college friend of mine, had uh, gotten a job as an investigator for the Treasury Department. He said, "Well, we're hiring." And so I applied for that job and I, uh, and I was hired to do that. But and the CIA was my, my end game initially.
0: And then uh, you go into the customs division and kind of uh, b- basically a DEA agent without the badge of the DEA, if I understand correctly.
1: That's right. Um, uh, in the in United States federal law, the title that covers narcotics is called Title 21 of the United States Code. And as a Treasury agent, I was Title 21 cross-designated. So the DEA deputized me to be a DEA agent. This was not an unusual thing either. This was a fairly common thing in federal law enforcement uh, because, you know, there's only so many DEA agents to go around. And, and so a lot, of our, a lot of Treasury agents were cross-designated, and I was one of them. Then
0: w- eventually you make your way to the FBI. Tell me what was your yes. first day like in Quantico.
1: The first day at Quantico, well, it. <laughs> I everybody's wearing business suits and we all have our orders in hand and we all go check in and uh, it was all very professionally done. It was uh, when I was a Treasury agent, we trained at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. Every federal law enforcement agency except the FBI and DEA train at FLETC, FLETC, F-L-E-T-C, Uh The DEA and the FBI both maintain academies at Quantico, Virginia, on the Marine Corps base in Quantico. And that's an artifact. DEA used to train at FLETC, too, but uh, there was a talk in the late 1980s of merging the DEA with the FBI, which never happened, but they did move their academy to Quantico because of that planning So there I am at FLETSI and it was a little more chaotic and checking in. And um, because so many different people, I mean, I was on a bus, picked up at the airport, go to FLETSI, so many different agencies on board, everybody going to a a little separate, you know, training uh, program. and, And it was a little more chaotic, but the FBI was, was very professional and it was like, you know, off of a checklist to fly an airplane, you know, Tick this one, tick that one, tick that mark. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, and then you know, go here. It was very professional.
0: Are you happy when you look back at your time in the FBI? Are you happy? Did it live up to the expectations you had?
1: You know, the 15 year old me, if they if that person read my bio, they would say, "I want to be that guy someday." So, in in that regard, I won. (laughs) I did things with the bureau that I wouldn't have done in any other walk of life. I mean, I used to go to meetings at the White House. I'm a nobody. I mean, but I used to be. uh, The way the National Security Council in the White House works is that only the top people are, are, uh, you know, presidential designees. The the people who actually do the work come from the various agencies. And I was, I was one of those people assigned to the National Security Council staff. Not wasn't a full time assignment, but it was a collateral duty for me. But but still, have to go into the White House for a meeting and be like, wow, you know, what am I doing uh, coming to the White House? to go to a meeting. I would never have done that working anywhere else. It wouldn't have done that if I continued with the Treasury Department, that's for sure. And so those kinds of things you know, that I got to do and the people I got to meet uh, were extraordinary. And it's because I worked for the FBI. And I will also say that my experience is not atypical. So if you read my bio, uh, that could be a lot of different people's bio with a little bit of different uh, changes. There's, um, you know, people for people who do amazing things get to do amazing things because they're employed by the um, Federal Bureau of Investigation.
0: There's a lot. If when you read your IMDb, there's cyber crime, there's drugs, there's a, a whole slot of different uh, kind of, I suppose, sort of salacious topics. But can you give us an idea as to some of the main things that you investigated or worked on at the FBI?
1: Yeah, I originally was a member of the Los Angeles Safe Streets Task Force. Uh, I was on a sub task force called the Sexual Assault Felony Enforcement Team. And that team uh, did two things. It was uh, it targeted traffickers of, of child pornography, uh, primarily on the Internet, and then also uh, targeted people who would grown men who would meet young girls or, online and then set up physical meetings. And it was a multi-agency task force. My partner on that task force was a Los Angeles Police Department detective. We had Los Angeles County Sheriff's Detectives, LAPD Detectives, Orange County, California Sheriff's Detectives, California Department of Justice Investigators, California uh, Board of uh, uh, Paroles Investigator. We had a, a representative of the U.S. Customs Service. And uh, the rest of us were FBI, and it was a very active squad. We we seemed to be serving an arrest and search warrant on somebody a couple times a week. Extremely active squad, and uh, we targeted mostly the travelers, the guys who would set up meetings uh, online to meet young girls. We had a Los Angeles County, a female Los Angeles County sheriff's deputy, who was a little blonde lady, um, quite attractive. It was about thirty years old, and she looked her age you know up close, but at a distance, you know where you know, she she could pass for a fourteen year old at a distance, just dress her properly to 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 play that role. and we nabbed a lot of guys that way um, using her as the uh, as the bait. Of course, the online transaction is between this guy and uh, the uh, the agent named Fred sitting over there. In that cubicle, but uh, when they actually tried to make the meat, there was this little blonde, uh, who who they believed was a four, was, for example a fourteen year old. I was quickly transferred from there to the Southern California Drug Task Force, which was a DEA led task force, where I worked against Pacific Islander and Mexican drug trafficking organizations. And uh, you know, I, I worked at a very big case, a uh, very big drug case. Uh, I was uh, we, we wiretapped uh, a, a female Mexican drug trafficker who lived in Hacienda Heights, California. It was an extremely difficult case because this person was she was uh, security conscious to the point of, uh, you, you know, it, she could have been trained by the KGB. She was so security conscious and um, multiple agencies had made a run at her and not uh, and not. um you know, made any headway. And I'm proud to say that, uh, that through just plain old gumshoe detective work, um, and I will pat myself on the back here, is that (laughs) we broke the case. And then, and then, um, my goodness, the first round of indictments were over 100 people in three United States states Mm -hmm. and Mexico. And spinoffs of the case continued for five years thereafter around the country. So it was a significant case, but I, I was tired of working, you know, drug cases like that. Other they're organized crime cases because you're not dealing with somebody selling drugs in a street corner. You're talking about working against whole organizations. But I had I was tired of that, so I I uh, requested a transfer to counterintelligence, and then I was transferred. To work uh, East Asian counterintelligence in the Los Angeles division.
0: Well, before and we then, before we progress yeah. that story a little bit, I'm very curious. Mm-hmm. When they come to you and they say, "Todd, listen, there are these you know horrific people who are exploiting children, or there is this uh, female drug kingpin who we can't quite nail down." How would you go about? What would the first steps be? in kind of, I suppose, instigating your technique of investigation? Is there perhaps people you would automatically call or, you know, uh, checks and balances that you would initially put into place?
1: Well, the number one thing is to talk to people. And the, you know, you're, in, in both law enforcement and intelligence, including counterintelligence, intelligence and counterintelligence are two sides of the same coin but but the what you have to do to make cases and investigations and intelligence collection go forward is you have to recruit and operate human sources people who will tell you stuff and uh and that's and that's what we did now as far as the child pornography cases there are known websites mostly today on the dark web that people traffic in all sorts of illicit materials including child pornography so um it's just a it's a matter of of getting into those sites and then posing as a uh, you know as a player and uh you know sometimes people come to you sometimes there's someone who is arrested they've dealt with others online and in order to reduce the sentence they're going to receive have agreed to cooperate and they cooperate and then there's a whole list of people to then contact that you can re- operate the person who has been arrested and uh, usually this is before they go to trial because you want the cooperation to be uh, what you expect prior to going to court Um, because they can say anything and then, you know, they get a sentence and then, you know, big middle finger, screw you guys. Mm. Um, So, you know, you, you don't just, it's a very, it's a greased machine. It works properly. So, you know, the government being taken advantage of by some crook is about, the chances are about zero. Mm. But, uh, you know, you, you know, these people, you operate them as a source against other traffickers. It could be trafficking in stolen art. It doesn't have to be child pornography, but, you, you know, you just operate these people against these other traffickers and you reel them in. And, uh, and the same thing in that, that drug case, you know, the uh, DEA tried hard twice to make a case against this person. The Anaheim, California Police Department tried hard to make a case against this person and could not. And my supervisor uh threw it on my desk. He said, solve this case. And uh I remember I was reading a case and I went to him and said, I don't, I don't think there's enough there. And I remember him saying, <laughs> he pointed at me, he said, she's running dope. You get back there and you know, you figure this case out. And, um, and uh, I said, okay. And I went and I'm really happy that he, that he didn't let me say, look, I, I don't, I can't see anything here. There's nothing there that he made me go back and look again. I found one report in the case file, Jack, I got a coffee cup in my hand. Let me turn away from the camera. The case file that I had access to was the DEA was this, was the task force case file. And, and yeah, the computer age, but we're talking, you know, the late nineties, the case file was about that thick. So I read every single report in the case file. I started over after my supervisor said, go back and, and look some more because there's something there. And I went back and I read it again from, from the first page. I read the whole case file again. There was one report filed by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department uh, of, of uh, a person who dropped a package off at a uh, commercial shipping site, the FedEx, I believe, if I remember correctly. Could have been United Parcel Service, but FedEx sticks in my head. And it just so happened on that day, there was a Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department drug detector canine. Working that location, who alerted on this package and it alerted on the package in time for the person who dropped it off to be observed going back to his vehicle and driving away. And then we had a license plate number the license plate number, you know, the registered owner. And so that was the key. That the, it, the LA County Sheriff's Department didn't follow up on, didn't open a case on this person. It was one of those things. They had so much going on. This was kind of put in the back burner and frankly, probably forgotten about, you know, there's always crime going on everywhere on planet earth all the time, you know, wherever there's humans, there's crime. So you only have so, so many people and so many hours in the day to handle all the cases that can arise. So this was kind of put, put to the side forgotten about by the County Sheriff's department. And from that one report, which was, I've given you basically the entire report. It was on one page. And um, I contacted that owner. And from that contact, I recruited four confidential human sources and one cooperating witness. And that and, was and, the and case that, solved. That, that, that's what started moving the case forward. and We developed enough probable cause to apply for a, a wiretap. And, uh, you know, the judge granted it. And then we went live. And after that, once a wiretap went up, that was, um, you know, that the case just moved. It moved like a train, you know, gaining speed. Uh, I will say this, because what people see in American, the worst exports of the United States are our television shows and our movies, <laughs> gives people a really warped view of the United States. But one thing that's always portrayed in American TV shows and movies is that, the government can just go get a wiretap with a snap of the fingers and it is absolutely not like that it is an arduous process um it's very very difficult and uh, there's that judge who can just tell you no you don't have enough probable cause you know go back and get more you know get out of my office and um but but there's a whole process from the administrative side going through the department of federal department of justice Before it even gets to a judge. So it's an arduous process. It's not easy, but, but we, we are, we developed the probable cause because of these human sources and move the case forward. And of course, I mentioned earlier, you know, what it led to in the first round of indictments. That's very
0: good. I wondered, you know, that that soldier mentality that you have, it must be very, very vital because I would say it would be difficult to lay your head on a pillow at night when you're looking at these horrific images of children being exploited or certainly even just hearing the stories or even, you know, while it's a little bit more detached, some of this uh, kingpin stuff, you know, the kind of murder and brutality that can go on with that. Did those things ever jar with you?
1: I wasn't one of the people who had an online persona who were pursuing um the child pornographers. Uh I do have a I have a memory. Uh look, I I've 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 um I I've I've seen autopsy photos um you know shootout photos. Uh, I personally have uh, stepped over some dude's brains lying in the street after they were blown out of his head, with the rifle shot, um, and you know, I've seen a lot of that stuff. The only photograph in person and in photographs, the only, the only thing that, uh, really bothered me was there was a photograph I saw it was in a collection of photos. um, that a subject, a suspect had uh, sent around to his contacts on the internet. It was of a, about a three-year-old girl with a grown man's penis in her mouth. And that was the first time I actually got sick to my stomach, uh, looking at a photo, you know. Um, I've seen, you know, the medical examiner, the photos of the body laid open and, you know, stuff like that. I never really, that never really, those things didn't bother me. But that one photo, it still sticks in my head. Because, you know, who would do that to a a little, it's beyond my way of thinking, my perspective on on life on planet Earth, why anybody would do that to such a small child. And, um, you know, so that's the one thing that bothered me. None none of the other stuff really bothered me. And as far as the cartels go, um, the violence of the Mexican drug trafficking cartels today are, are, you know, third order of magnitude greater than they were um 20 years ago and and you know that that just comes with the territory It's just what these drug trafficking organizations do you know the colombians before them uh but the mexicans are way more violent than the colombians ever were in my opinion
0: being in Uh, the intelligence uh, sorry being in the intelligence Mm -hmm. community during the time of 9-11 what was that experience like
1: but when 9-11 happened, it was all hands on deck to try to, uh, you know, find out if there was another attack coming. Uh, the FBI had been re- very reactive up until that point, And President George W. Bush told the FBI director, was Robert Mueller at the time, that, uh, you know, um, I don't want to know. I don't want you to come and tell me what these guys did because they already did it. I want you to come and tell me what you're doing to prevent the next attack. So the whole posture of the FBI turned courts preventing the next attack and um you know for the first month after those attacks it was all hands on deck everybody regardless of what they were working you know you may have somebody worked organized crime over here white collar crime over there counterintelligence in my case everybody became a counterterrorism um agent and and worked to to make sure that there were you know no pending attacks on the united states it really uh, again it was all hands on deck and uh, I mean, very long hours and, uh, and a lot of vetting of information that was pouring in. I mean, I can tell you that we learned that a lot of people in Los Angeles didn't like their neighbors. They would call in and say, I got these Arab terrorists living next door to me and you must do something. And it turns out they weren't either Arab or terrorists at all. They just wanted their neighbors to get jacked with, you know? Mm. Um, so, uh, but whatever commentary that is on society, uh, there was so much information coming in, and at the time, and I think it's still true, is that every single piece of information had to be run to the ground, even if an experienced investigator would look at it and say, "Yeah, I don't think that this is something that's really there." Uh, you, you still had to run it to ground to make sure, and and, and that that was uh, that that took everybody's. Uh, Time and attention for a good long while.
0: Was there a sense of enthusiasm? Was it a, a sullen mood? How how was the kind of mood in in that community in the FBI? Because of course you know, two thousand lives plus had been lost. But at the same time, I suppose there had to be some adrenaline to go and put the fight to the terrorists.
1: Can I cuss on your show? Yeah, sure. The attitude was. We're going to get these motherfuckers and we're going to shove it right back up their asses. That was the attitude. I mean, that's why a week after 9-11, you had American commandos on the ground in uh, in Afghanistan. You know, in, in the entire U.S. intelligence community and in the parts of the, law, the federal law enforcement community that has a role to play in counterterrorism, that was the attitude and i'm not i mean I'm, I'm trying not to soft pedal and i'm probably not saying it um with enough enough emphasis but that was it that was the attitude and um i mean talk about talk about you know people who i mean we 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 were uh the the americans were generally you know even in, i was living in los angeles that is uh, you know california is a political Uh, left of center moving towards leftism state where you got all sorts of touchy feely kind of people who who um you know you wouldn't call politically conservative i mean they'd be on a different galaxy than that who were angry flying american flags you know stuck on their vehicles and stuff and it was a very different time for a few months in the united states where now we're politically divided and you know it's I'm sure it's the same in many European countries where the extremes seem to have the microphones, but at the time the country really came together, and people were angry and those of us who whose job it was to prevent another attack were were um well I described how we all felt, and that was uh that was real jack that was real. Mm-hmm.
0: Talk to me about your time in counterintelligence. So we went through your, uh, I suppose, a really difficult experience, but cutting your teeth with the Child Exploitation Task Force and then taking down this kingpin woman in Los Angeles. Then you seem to make the shift towards counterintelligence.
1: Yes. Yeah, I wanted to. I was tired of working, you know, drug cases. I I was just tired of it. Um, it it It's almost... You know, California borders Mexico, as does my home state, you know, the great, mighty, and sovereign state of Texas. And, you know, you can almost take – you almost write reports, you know, write affidavits, and you change the dates uh, and, and the names, and it's the same stuff. And all the names are going to be Spanish names, you know. And so you just change dates and names. You don't do that in practice because that you, you can't – conduct a lawful investigation that way. But I mean, from an impressionistic standpoint, it, it just got to be, you know, I did this five years before the Bureau and then I, I'm doing it now. I, I didn't, you know, I want to do FBI stuff, not DEA stuff. I want to do FBI stuff. So I, I, uh, you know, asked for a transfer to counterintelligence. I was assigned to East Asian counterintelligence Um specifically uh, a couple of communist nations in East Asia, uh, we were working against, um, and, and and I was working against one, which is particularly uh, oppressive. And uh, then we had uh, a penetration of the FBI by the Foreign Intelligence Service, an East Asian nation of some um, sizable population. And I was sent to work on the task force to uh, investigate that. And there were several spinoff cases of that in which I had two or three and uh, worked on that in Los Angeles and then was uh, ordered to headquarters for 30 days to, uh, to push through the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act applications for wiretaps. And 30 days became seven months and then seven months turned into a transfer to headquarters. In the
0: East Asian, Asian cases, would a lot of that been situated in East Asia, or was it more from the American side?
1: No, from our side, from the United States. You know, Los Angeles is—I'm um, just give you an example. There are more Iranians who live in Los Angeles, California, than any other place on planet Earth except Iran. It is a place which attracts people from all over the world. Now, I personally hate Los Angeles as a place to live. However, um, you know, many American television shows are set in Los Angeles simply because it's convenient. Um, So it has a pull around the world. So if there's a population of people, um, there's a whole bunch of them in Los Angeles
0: in 2014 you decided to as we said retire from the fbi was it difficult to adjust back to i suppose civilian life you are now practicing as a lawyer and you've got another side venture i understand as well is it difficult Mm -hmm. to go from the high octane and i suppose the constant threat to not being able to even be involved in stopping the threats you might see on a day-to-day basis
1: The biggest adjustment really was when something big was in the news that the FBI was working on is not being involved in it. The day to day, I didn't miss it all. I don't miss it now. Um, I have very little contact with anybody who works with the FBI today. It's something I I did once. I'm very proud of it. And I'm very proud of the things that I did. Um, I'm proud of my service. But it's something I did once. I don't dwell on it. And um so so it's just when something big happens. I don't know if you'll remember. Gosh, it might be four or five maybe 5 years ago today but in San Bernardino, California at a office Christmas party, these two um Arab Muslim individuals, a husband-wife team shot up the uh I'm sorry, I'm making my phone rock back and forth. Shot up this Christmas party and and it was a, an act of terrorism and And of course, the FBI is the lead agency in counterterrorism in the United States. And it's things like that. Man, I wish I was there working on that Um, when they're big news stories. Uh, Otherwise, no, it wasn't a big adjustment. um, Other than that.
0: That's well, that's a good thing to hear, I suppose. Todd, uh, thanks again. You've given us so much of your time. Uh, Is there anywhere? uh, I believe you have a podcast, if I'm correct.
1: I do. It's called the Dirt Wasp podcast. It can be found uh, on virtually every podcast directory. It leans heavily on military and martial arts subjects, as well as some law enforcement subjects. But I have in the catalog of episodes, I think I'm up to 62 episodes right now. There's, you know, a whole bunch of different topics. So I would just encourage people to just Google search dirt wasp podcast and the website will come up and many of the podcast directories will too and just peruse our catalog of episodes and uh you know take a listen and if you like it obviously you know jack you want somebody to uh, give you a rating you know give you a review refer it out that would be fantastic
0: well todd holsey thanks so much once again all the way from america joining us here in ireland